the seventh ray. It's quite a fascinating ray, as all of you know. This new age that we're heading into is governed in many ways by the seventh ray. It's the seventh ray that brings it on. It's going to produce a closer communication between humans and the diva kingdom, specifically the divas of the shadows, as they're called, which are the violet divas of the Ifric plain. These particular types of divas, according to DK, working to make themselves brighter so human beings can begin to see them in the coming epoch of love. So there's two forces, or three forces in a sense, coming through in this new age. One is the first ray that penetrates and starts it all, which is what we are doing. We're sort of the first ray hubbing the openers of the door. And then the seventh ray anchors the first ray onto the physical plane through means of ritual power. It's the Aquarian Age, which is governed by Uranus, which is the seventh ray. So it brings in for this whole Aquarian epoch the energies of the seventh ray, just astrologically speaking. But the seventh ray also comes in to produce a new cycle of ritual magic, ceremonial aptitude. And when you get the first and the seventh ray combined, as we have now with lots of sixth ray overtones, then we have also a cycle of war and some of these other unpleasant things as humanity can't quite handle those types of energies without distorting it. So this cycle of ceremonial aptitude or ritual magic is, as you can see, going to carry right through into this new age. And the so-called new ages, seventh ray, by design, they bring in the new occultism. The flower of what was actually Atlantis and the other ray that's brought in with this ray combination, with uh, the addition of the third ray, with its mathematical exact activity, is the second ray. And so the new cycle of the new age is actually the second ray. It's the major, major second ray cycle. And it's that which will produce the... or making the Earth a sacred planet. But we need a bit of um, cleansing of the samskaras, of the karma of the planet, before we can get into the new age, and therefore we have wars, cataclysm, sort of thing plan. Another sort of thing that DK says in one of his books, which is quite good to do with the 7th Ray, is that there's going to gradually over the next 100 years or so be more flowers that'll have the violet hue. So you'll see those colours, so the colour, the sort of flowers, so the, the vegetable kingdom comes in and out of cycle according to the ray cycles as well. So definitely a period of activity ahead of us where there's closer cooperation between the Diva Kingdom and the Human Kingdom. Specifically, these ones called the Divas of the Shadows. And they're also the Divas, uh, in many ways, responsible for healing, health, vitality, all of those things that, that makes many of these New Ager-type people that, what they're interested in. You know, the body beautiful, all those sorts of activities. These raised statements are quite potent. And when I first saw them, I said, oh, no, I don't want to go into all of these, it's just um, a little bit too esoteric. And um, indeed they are. Many of these statements are not quite what most people think of when they're looking at such of the rays as you can see now, because they're going from high, high perspectives, perspectives that the average student includes most of you don't have access of the keys to the doors. You haven't done enough studies. 
the seventh ray governs the physical plane per se. So all of the seven systemic planes, the seven systemic planes are the planes of perception in which we are all connected through as monads. And so it starts with Adi, Anapadaka, Atma, Buddhi, Manas, or the mental plane, astral plane, physical plane. All of that is governed by the seventh ray. It's the cosmic, then it's physical. So you uh, can see that, that in many ways this particular ray line is exceedingly important because the physical plane is um, divided into two parts, an etheric part consisting of four subplanes and a uh, physical part consisting of three subplanes. Therefore, the, the seventh ray itself has these two aspects to it. As a matter of fact, I generally, when I'm looking at the seventh ray, I'm looking more often than not at just the etheric part of it, the four subplanes of the ethers, because um, <coughs> that's where all the magic is wrought. The physical plane, after all, is an automaton. It happens totally in accordance with what manifests through the Nadi system the chakra system so the seventh ray more like Uranus if you're looking at this astrologically they, it governs more of those four subplanes of the ethers whereas the physical plane comes more under the diminution of the third ray and these rays the seventh and the third ray are the rays that govern the planet earth also the third ray you can see it everywhere in this green of nature and the seventh ray and the rituals of, of the cycles that govern all the cycles of the evolution of all the kingdoms of nature. As per usual, when you're going to these statements, there's generally a, a up or down movement of, of seven race, sub-race statements and then um, up or down movement of a further seven. And it normally did start from, from cosmic planes going down. In other words, in the subtlest but in this particular case, it's reversed. Because we're dealing with the seventh ray and the physical plane, it actually starts from the point of view of the magician on the physical plane, and the accomplished magician, the, the one who's actually mastered all the processes of life. The unveiled magician, if you have a concept of what magic is. If we're looking at magicians, most of you are probably aware there's two types of magicians on this planet. There's the black magician, which some of you have zapped, and there's the white magician. What do you think is the difference in their methodology of activity with regards to magic? The black magician binds, bonds all the forces into form. They, they make rigid form. They, they perpetuate samsara. They produce the prison house of the forms within which the life is trapped. And so it makes ever more congealing substance. Whereas the white magician actually works to liberate the elemental life within the forms and it produces radioactivity, the transmutation of substance. If you're going to get to a state where there's a magician and the magician is unveiled, it really is a being that has already developed a philosopher's stone that can transmute substance. You're working with, as I said, the violet divas, the divas of the shadows, 
And these divas are alchemical workers. They're the ones that work with all the elements of the mineral kingdom. The green divas are the divas of nature, of the plant kingdom. The violet divas are the divas of the etheric body and of the way forms appear. The unveiled magician works with ritual. So you liberate the life that's trapped within the form through accelerating their natural cycle of evolution, the natural process of the way that they would evolve to gain their own liberation in nature. Therefore, if the magician is working to create the philosopher's stone, that magical stone that um, the alchemists thought that could turn all base metals into gold, then they do that through a process of liberating the life of the basic ingredients they start off with. In in the case of alchemy, it's um, sulphur and mercury. Sulphur is the stone that burns, and mercury is this quicksilver liquid, a metal that's liquid on the physical plane. You can see they both have unique qualities. One relates to the um, Idanadi, which is the sulphur, and the other relates to the Pingala Nadi, and it's the way of integrating the two through combination and recombination and distillation and redistillation, capturing the essence and then adding into the energy of mind, the fires of mind, and eventually you get this philosopher's stone. But by the time you've done that, you've also transformed yourself into a philosopher, into an enlightened being. Yeah, and by a magician. You therefore can work with the chakras and uh, you've awakened the cities. The power to transmute form, to create miracles, to heal people of their emotional ailments and so forth. You can see it starts off therefore with the seventh sub-ray, if you want, of the seventh ray, the physical plane, and the way or the mode of gaining enlightenment through the form, through control of absolute mastery or control of all the cycles of life so that life is liberated the the essence of life the essence is the bulk in um, alchemical treatises if you ever look at any of them there's some really good ones uh, if you ever look at them you'll see that they have um, any dual symbols of male, female integrated, consubstantiated, normally always um, mingled with Christian symbolism because, of course, they had to do that in order to survive the the plague of the Inquisition that lasted for many hundreds of years and we still have lots of inquisitors that have reincarnated around, as you all know. So it continues. So the unveiled magician, therefore, is one who can work with the energies of the Ifric double and bring the highest energy, the first ray, right into the form in order to change the construct of the form, in order to produce a nuclear bomb explosion within uh, a minute little cycles of transmutation. But you can think of that energy that makes a nuclear bomb, and you think that the unveiled magician can actually hold that energy and consciousness to produce the transformations that we call alchemy, then you know how base metals can be turned into gold. You put it on lead and voila, it turns in this lovely sort of yellow colour. 
And you can see there was quite a lot of kings back in those early days that, that um, were very happy to pay alchemists. They actually supported a lot of alchemists uh, and alchemical labs because they're quite happy to get their hands and their greedy little hands on this metal that could uh, make them fabulously wealthy. But of course any alchemists worth their weight in gold would never ever subscribe to being supported by such a person. It's contradictory. However, of course, they are also the Dark Brotherhood. They have methodologies. So that's the first one, the Unveiled Magician. So you're building the Antichrona upwards to the highest plane and you're bringing down cosmic astral energies or really cosmic mental energies right into the form to transmute. You're liberating the inherent fires of the form itself. And as I said, it's nuclear energy. Those of you that want to be magicians are welcome to work upon themselves so that they can handle this fire and then they can become master siddhas. Siddha is one who has psychic power to do all these sorts of things, fly in the air and whatever else that they say you can do. You can see, therefore, it's quite an accomplishment to be an unveiled magician, and therefore it really does start at a very high level of initiation, does it not? And all of these um, statements really is about those great beings that have already gotten there, rather than those such as we are that are still struggling to get there. And that's one of the reasons why that is a little bit difficult to do. So the magician is unveiled because the life within the form is unveiled. Any of you aware of the violet colour, what it really is? Do you know the difference between purple and violet? The purple that the Dark Brotherhood use and the violet that we of the White Brotherhood like? The one is quite vibrant. Then he has a, a bit of blue. <laughs> one is more ruddy so and, and duller. It's darker dense. and heavier, dense, dense in its um, form. So I want you to just be aware of the fact that when you choose clothing, try not to wear the coloration of the dark brotherhood. And there is a difference. Okay, so you can see we can spend a long time just on this one, one statement, the unveiled magician. Point number two, the sixth subray of this seventh ray is called the worker and the magical art. There you have the healer. The healing process and the real cities concern the solar plexus center and the healing of all of people's emotional owls and complaints and things like that. And most of you are quite aware how many problems your emotions cause and how much healing is needed as a consequence of them. And everything that you do emotionally precipitates into the physical body. So you expound outwardly all this emotional energy when you're going through those uh, moments of regret or sorrow or sadness or explosions or anxieties or worry or... You know it all. So it weakens the chakras, the substance (coughs) of your body, physical substance. The astral substance is going out, and so there's a, a dearth of energy there. And that then has a reciprocal effect upon the physical form and therefore it sows the seeds for the breeding of those disease-bearing agents we call germs, microbes, and all those things that concrete science loves to tell you is the cause of sicknesses, when they're really just the effects 
of you creating the conditions whereby they can reside happily. And you can do it through eating toxic substances, you know, meat and so forth. This also creates those conditions. But most of you are aware of how emotional you are, and every time you're emotional, you throw out substance, and they just throw out substance. There's a vortice of energy that's coming out of you, and it weakens in the physical body. The chakras that are being activated and throwing out the substance, the chakras are the energy vehicles of the form. So there's minor chakras. It's not just the solar plexus center, but all the minor chakras that embody the consciousness aspect or the sentiency, which is the, the, the correct term of it, of your organs. So you've got 22 minor chakras, for instance, and therefore they, the externalizations are actually organs in the body. And then there's another 49 smaller ones and so forth. And so you get sub-aspects of the organs. And so the externalization of the chakra is the physical organ itself. So when you activate the chakra and you're throwing out substance, you're not feeding the organ with what it needs, the vitality it needs in order to be healthy. And this is the basis of all sickness and disease. You're poisoning the organs in one way through wrong diet, and then you are devitalizing the organs or over-energizing the organs. It's another way of I'm putting it sometimes because of the emotional stimulation. The energies come in, for instance, if you're um, worried, anxious, you put a lot of energy into yourself too through depression. Some of you have been depressed, I know, a few times in your life. Um, that puts the energy in. High hilarity, you know, when you're laughing and joking away and all of that, that shows the energy out. So you've got two types of bases of sickness, congestion and inflammation. And this is, again, what you've got to look at if you want to be easy to take healers. What is it that causes inflammation in you, and therefore you know the diseases of inflammation, colds, flus, coughs, um, those types of fevers and epidemics? Why do we have epidemics? Because humanity have mass emotions. Just look at a football match to understand the way that they feed each other with their emotions. Go to any school and you know, and war and all this sort of stuff. There's the, the mass emotions, and so it's mass weakening of that substance, and therefore they must pay for it this way. Anyway, it's painful to see too much emotions in people because, one, you're attacked by those emotions, and two, you can see the sickness that's been created. Have ever have you any of thought of the fact that your emotions are sickness-inducing? Um, think about it along these lines and you will get it. And therefore, the worker in the magical art is the one who knows how to heal those emotional sicknesses. So the worker has, has got the wand so to, to speak. What is the magical art? It's um, the great work. You do this by means of the mind. You bring in the energy of the mind to control the emotions. You don't control the emotions through suppression. You don't control the emotions through the force of the will. Because that just intensifies it. You've got to do it through proper reasoning. The emotions are not good for me, therefore I shall calm myself. I shall take five breaths. I shall be loving instead of emotional. So your mind is actually rationalizing 
how to manifest correctly at all times. So we get samatha in Buddhism, the, the mindfulness of breath, a meditation technique, and it's essential if you want to become enlightened, to actually go through the steps of actually always controlling your breath. Controlling your breath means controlling the mind, the way the mind looks at the emotions. You breathe in slowly, you breathe out slowly, you calm your mind with this concept of a ocean, a still, calm, clear ocean. It's always in this tranquil state, and the mind does this. And as you can do this, then the sickness will start to dissipate. Of course, you'll still have sicknesses, because you've got all the same scars of your past lives sort of coming through, but you're cleansing them. You're no longer creating more conditionings for further sicknesses in the future. So the work in the magical art uses the cycles again of the, and the rituals of life, the emotional tides, the moons, the lunar tides, but with an understanding of the laws of mind and the way that the laws of mind apply upon the watery world. And so this is the production of what in Buddhism is called the lesser cities, the lesser psychic powers. And these are all powers of the solar plexus center, the ten petals. And in my book, uh, Cellular Consciousness, in one of the later chapters, I actually give you these powers to do with each of the petals of these lesser cities. Because if you've managed to get through five, six hundred pages of quite abstruse philosophy, you may be actually um, benefit from that knowledge at that stage. One of the numbers there in the magical art, for instance, is 24, which is the second sign of the Zodiac Taurus. Taurus governs the field of desire in many ways. The pole opposite of Taurus is Scorpio. And you have the whole battlefield of desire there, and the one that then seduces it all. You know, you've got the concept of the, the mad or the blind, unrushing bull. Now, this bull is a bull. It's rushing on to have its way with that herd of cows over there. How do you stop it? How do you tame that thing, that animal? That's um, the undevelopatorian. So what I'm trying to get to here, that the astral plane itself is created under the species of Taurus. So the work in the magical art works with this Taurian energy in its higher aspect, which is the awakened third eye the Ajna Centre, the all-seeing eye, in order to accomplish his or her wonders. And this is another thing that the seventh ray does. It's the opening of this eye. Oh, wow, isn't that wonderful? Again, done through controlled ritual. Now you understand why I like the seventh ray. It's, it's quite a good ray to actually have some command of, because it helps you to master your personality vehicle and all aspects of it if you don't abuse it by means of the first ray or by means of the first ray and mind and emotions combined in which case you become a black magician and there's plenty of those working on this planet i can tell you there's plenty 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 it's either wild black in a way it's quite quixotic that's right the crystallizer forms yes yes so the magical art is Either way, isn't it? The black magician uses this solar plexus magic and sex magic to manipulate people's sensualities, to dominate them you know, through power, 
Well, all of those basic emotional instincts, they are masters of that. And they control other people's emotions and their thought form making agendas and so forth. You don't want to be manipulated by such a being. And this is where this word cult gets a bad name because there's a few black magicians out there manifesting their black arts and somehow the popular press don't understand the difference between the black and the white. And you can see you're actually being trained by hierarchy to become white magicians. And those of you who have been with me for some years now, ten or more years, and much more for some of you, you can see that actually become a white magician is a very slow process. Hierarchy takes their time and uh, trains you with care before they open up within you any of the doors to psychic powers, to the cities. You have to pass your second initiation. That's just the bottom line of it. Without the second initiation, you simply can't master the waters. You'll be controlled by them and you'll become a black magician faster than, you can say, gee winkies. You will control the waters after the second. You'll be controlled by the waters if you haven't taken the second. But the um, black magicians can also take their second initiation. They can't take our third which is complete control of mind in such a way that love works through it. The work of the magical art, and the magical art is the control of the waters, of this emotional world that virtually everyone on this planet wallows in. I suppose I was trying to find a nice word for it. Wallows is probably a good, good word for it. Wallows in and finds it very hard to figure out what life is like outside the bubble of the emotions. The second initiation, your head breaks through that bubble and you finally see some light outside the emotions. And everyone else lives within the bubble and all their perceptions is coloured by the auric qualifications associated with the bubble. It's something like, finally breaking out of the womb... The waters of the womb burst and the head comes out. That's the second initiation, spiritually speaking. You're just a little baby. Yeah, you come out screaming, yes. That's right. Somebody who's actually passed her second actually understands the process and it's not easy. And everyone else that hasn't probably don't want to go through the crises, the points of crises associated with them. There's five sub-initiations to every major initiation. I'm getting tired often with new people who tell them this is a school of initiation. Uh, we teach initiation here and it sort of goes through their heads. One year later, if they with us one year, which is quite rare... Still, they still haven't understood that we are school for initiation, what that means. Because most don't really read and hold the Bailey books. And the Bailey books don't even give you enough because it's only when you go through the, the experience itself when hierarchy keeps the very worst of your karma for you to master for the second and the fourth initiation, which is the crucifixion on the cross, is the high correspondence of the second. And there's not a lot of bad karma that you've got to cleanse. So sometimes you've mastered most of your second, and you've done a lot of your third and some of your fourth. 
because the second is what people find very difficult to master because of these this emotional world, because it's so addictive and so attractive, so all-consuming, to live within that womb. And so they work in the magical art is one who has first started that bubble and some control of all of those, that element, the element of the waters. So the unveiled magician, we, we're starting with the ifric body and therefore the control of the energies that goes through the nadi system and the chakras. The worker in the magical art is the watery sphere, the astral plane, and you're a, a master of that element of the heaven and hell zones of humanity that they, what they go through. The third statement or the fifth subray of this seventh ray is the creator of the form. So we now finally get to the magician working on their natural domain, which is the mind. Because the watery sphere and the physical sphere they're just really uh, automatons, externalizations of what comes through <coughs> the mind itself. And therefore it's the creator of the form. That which actually can build, mould, manipulate the form, all forms. Whether, and we're looking at forms in this particular case of thought forms, of mandalas, of living mandalas, living mandalas of life, of light, of even the substance that, that appears so somebody of, that this particular <coughs> magician can make maybe a flower appear in his hand or whatever, a game that they want to play, if that's the, the game that um, they're playing. So the form is created, but the true form is a form such as what we are creating here, um, a form of, of initiation undertaking, a mandala of earnest disciples of hierarchy seeking light. There's a certain magical work that has to be done in order to bring all you together at the right cycles with all of your different temperaments, to blend your energies so that it produces a wonderful service vehicle of cooperative, loving, harmonious disciples. Never an ill word between you, no criticisms, just love. And everyone compliments each other properly so that you can serve humanity and the other kingdom of nature effortlessly, spontaneously, all those types of ways. And you because know, I'm talking about an ideal here. But it's coming, it's happening, isn't it? And um, those of you who have gone through this particular process of group evolution understand what creator of the form therefore means. Because you can see the living alchemical retort here, then the crucible, that's all your ground, your emotions are ground into it, your minds are ground into it. Finally, first of all, we throw somebody in that's new to the group. I don't even want to go into the, the concept of the amount of stuff that has to come out of them. The samskaras, the mental emotions, and all their attachments to ideas and whatever, before they can sort of actually be cleaned enough to be a proper part of this group that um, is really honed through the seventh ray methodology. Every part fits together like a wonderful machinery. You take one cog away and it sort of crumbles, but it shouldn't. Anyway, this is the, the creator of the form. The form, therefore, is mental construences of which the physical plane, the result is automatically upon the physical plane. In the field of illusion, 
and the world of phenomena. It's a, it's a wonderful phrase, actually. Have you ever thought of the fact that you are actually phenomenal appearances of that which you are? Not real. Just an appearance of it. I mean, you can look at yourselves and sort of it's changing all the time, isn't it? It's, it's, it's getting older. <laughs> that's one thing that's guaranteed. Everything's getting older. And it's always changing. But it's an appearance. What is it that is making these forms move and breathe and act the way it does? This creator of the form, and in the case of your forms, is your souls. What I call the Sambhogakaya flower in my books. It's incarnating into all of these forms here. And it feeds you with inspiration and directs your karma so that there's a desired outcome at the end. It's already worked out before you're born or while you're in your womb or while it was putting you in the womb or while it was arranging the male and female to have their interrelationship that you actually can be formed in the womb. It's already worked all that out right to the day you die onwards. The cycle's ahead. This is the phenomenal appearance. It doesn't really have much reality. It's a playground, a, you know, a game that everyone's playing. But they get so attached to it because they think it's real. And the attachment to the phenomena and try to make it real is the sickness that everyone suffers. Eliminate that attachment. Begin to understand the phenomenality of everything that appears around you. And you should be happy, joyous liberated work with it for its purpose and that's what you are doing here with this path you are trying to overcome the conditionings of this present life since you were born you know know all those conditionings social conditionings, (coughs) parental conditionings all types of other sort of um, samskaras from former lives sort of flowing in this um, marching time space continuum that is your mind those conditionings. That's what you're trying to master, to understand them, to work with them, to calm them, to produce a equilibrium so that the true you can work with that. And then it produces a harmony, an integration emergence between this mind that has been created in this time, no longer controlled by the emotions at all in any way, shape or form, with that mind, that is your higher self, consubstantiated. It's one. That's the third initiation. And so you can see from the process of the second initiation, the work of the magical art, and the magical art is dealing with all of these crucibles and retorts and distillation apparatus of all the liquids, liquids bubbling away in there, of all the heat being applied, and there's a fractional distillation column, and eventually there's some essence that you're capturing, and that's the, the most volatile and purified essence of what you are, the pure mind. That's the real you make it happen become the worker in the magical art and then the creator of the form so once you're there in that domain of pure mind and it's been consubstantiated and this is the whole symbol of of the wafer that the priest uses there's the soul in the form of the ant that's what you're going to become the living Christ so how you get there 
how you become that, that wafer that somebody can pop into their mouth and swallow. Gone. Gone, gone, gone to the other shore, thus fulfilled, you know, the gutta, gutta, paragutta, this, this old stuff. So who is it that swallows you? Well, it's Senakamara, and it's the, the way it really goes. But this is another story, another sort of level of interpretation of these things. What I'm trying to get to anyway, you can see the progression. You become this illumined being, it's just pure mind, no emotions, and then the soul and you together, one mind, create the form that's around you. It incarnates into this thing and incarnates into that. That is you, that is the group. And whatever the enlightenment path is for this group, whatever service work you do, that's the form. And the seventh ray alchemical magician can therefore create the form that is the philosopher's stone. It needs the element of fire. Without the fire, underneath the retort, making everything in there bubble away and sort of change all those colours, changing all those colours of, of the mercury or the, the, the mercuric oxide, which is a lovely red colour to start off with, into quicksilver and then it goes with the sulphur and it goes into the yellow, browns and greens. and So the complete transformation through all of the various ray colourings until everything is purified and more purified and more purified and more purified and more until there's the essence left. And that's what happens with each of you. As hierarchy puts in the energies, you go, Rock! Sickness, disease, can't stand it. And your emotions go a bit extreme and volatile because the energies, too much energies are coming into you. And then others' energies and emotional bodies impacting upon yours and the course of the kids screaming away. It's very hard to control all of that. But that's the path, yes. And you can see that the path is, as you work upon yourself to cleanse your base natures, from gross sensuality all the way up to refined thoughts, and all the time becoming more and more refined, the energies come in more and more intense, and they start to clean those chakras out, make them more vibrant and fourth-dimensional, hopefully, in the end, and expand them. Wonderful sight, imagine that. You then become a living flower, a living garden, every I knew it was vibrant and buzzing and humming and, and beautiful. But it's thrown out all that mucky, yucky substance and you've gone through all your screaming and, 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 um, and reactions to your, but sometimes you call bad karma, because all that has to be cleansed as well. So, that is it. The, the flowers in Moya's garden, each one of you, yes? The leaves of Moya's garden, the flowers of Moya's garden. Now you know what it is. It's you becoming cleansed and refined and beautiful so his sunlight can shine on it and you become a creator of the form. So that gives you an idea of these, these first three of the seventh ray. Remember we've got 20 of them yet to go. Okay, the fourth one, the fourth sub-ray. Now the fourth subray is the middle between all extremes, as you know, the, that which is, produces beauty in the midst of strife, harmonising beauty, 
it integrates all those warring parties within yourself. Have you ever had this forefray quality within? Yes, no, no, yes. Shall I do this? Shall I do that? Can't make up your minds about things. And somehow, within all these conflicting ideas, you've got to come to a nice middle ground, a nice, calm, receptive, Eureka! I got it! attitude. No more warring, battling minds of emotions and extremes, just simply the flowing middle river. Clean nadis. So, the fourth subplane or the subray of the seventh ray is the bestower of light from the second lord. Well, you should know what the second lord is, as anyone here doesn't know. Just think of it as the second ray line, yes, love wisdom line. Technically, if we going all Christian, which I've been going to in, in, in this book I'm writing at the end of it, call it the Christ energy, the embodied Christ, the principle of love, the bodhicitta in the Buddhist terms, the quality that makes your body suffer, to never cease striving until all sentient beings have been relieved from suffering. What about your own suffering? The bestower of the light from the second Lord works with the Nadi system, but not so much in terms of the way that it impacts upon the form, but the way it manifests in the field of consciousness in the domain of light itself. It's a ritualized way of manifesting the second ray of love wisdom. Could the second mm. Lord be the soul? Could it can be, be the soul. Mm. Yes, it can be the soul itself. <laughs> then with the first Lord being the, the no, spirit of monad. No. Yes, but whichever way it is, you're looking at the principle of the Christ, the Christ principle, mm. that which is the consciousness-bearing aspect, that which awakens the flowers, that which makes you open up your mouth and speak no harmonious, melodious tunes to everyone around and they swoon off in graceful sort of joy with what they've heard from you. And you know how to do it ritualistically because you know the proper cycles of speaking and the cycles of not speaking perfectly. This fourth ray lord, a chambala we are talking about here, does know how to do that perfectly. There's a time when the energy must come and a time when the energy must be abstracted. A time when there's calm and no expression and a time again or cycle of expression. And so the light from the second Lord manifests in this ritualistic ceremonial way that gives out the teachings, the love principle, the light, of course, is the blue light or the golden light or whatever other... Generally, of course, we're talking about the second Lord, therefore it's the blue, the gold, and the silver white, the second ray line. But it can be any of the other lights because all the sub-rays, all the rays are really sub-rays of the second ray. This particular energy is necessary, absolutely essential, for these other, these first three statements. They receive this light, and through the receiving this light, 
via the chakras they create the form, they work the magical art and they unveil themselves as magicians. This unveiled magician, of course, magician on the whole, the true magician, is veiled because the average human being and the average spiritual being has no concept of what that being's about. They only unveil themselves to those students that are worthy of that knowledge, that revelation. On the whole, the seventh-ray disciple works in secret. There's one aspect of the seventh ray which is quite intriguing. None of this really relates to it because we're talking about the average seventh ray that is martial, that's warlike. They can be quite effective warriors on the physical plane. They can be quite effective doers on the physical plane on the whole. They control their physical plane lives quite well. They can be very forceful, domineering, uh, no-nonsense type people. Uh, yeah, the Japanese um, is a whole rule by the seventh ray. Yes. Okay, so the fourth is the bestowal of the light from the seventh lord, and you can see that this energy of this light comes from the cosmic astral plane onto the um, plane and the padaka, and from the plane and the padaka all the way through to the magician via their ifric body, via their mastered mind. So we can now go up to the fifth of his statements, which relates to the third subray of the seventh. This is quite an important combination, 3773. It's um, the ray line that actually governs, as I said, the planet as a whole. It facilitates, therefore, the worker, the magician, to contact the mother of the world and the entire diva hierarchy. All magic is really done with diva potency, with the divas, with cooperation of the divas. The black magicians, they force the divas, they bind the divas through the force of will into forms to make the divas do uh, whatever they want them to do. And so they imprison the divas. But the white magician are conscious cooperators with the divas. We work with their cycles, their law, their lives, their mantric sound. Therefore, this statement here is the manipulator of the wand. What is the wand? It's the instrument of power. And you manipulate the wand because the wand is literally an antikrana, a pointing device that manipulates the energies of the divas. I don't like to use that word, but it's basically the cooperative incorporation and working with the energies of divas in this sort of form where the magic is to be done. I don't know if any of you know Toro. There's a lovely, um, the, the Rider weight, weight deck, they have the magician with the wand pointing upwards and then the hand, I think, is pointing downwards on the pentagram like that. And that's basically the wand goes up and points to heaven to bring down these high energies from the monad, from the dharmakaya, and then produces the magic. So what is the wand in reality? The wand is the extension of your spinal column. It really is the extension of all the forces that run up the backbone, presuming, of course, that the Kundalini fire has been awakened. And then you use the eye to direct the energies, to produce 
the focused purpose. So the manipulator of the wand is the one that controls all of these five ray lines. Is in charge and directs the energies to one or the other in order to produce the magical effect, the unveiled magician on the physical plane. So you can see that all of these qualities are qualities of one individual, the unveiled magician. Here's a manipulator, the wand, the style of light from the second and so forth. And this is what the K is trying to give you. There's seven sub-ray methods of work by the magician, and these are the mechanisms. In this particular case, when he's using his wand, when he's directing it in a one focused way, he's directing, using the third ray for mathematically exact activity. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the numbers, the manipulator is up to, to number 11, which is the energy of the one, it's the energy of the antikrana, of the ability to use all energies of these rays to link everything up together. That's quite good. So there's your third sub-ray aspect that combines all of these other rays into a focused potency. The second sub-ray quality of this particular magician is called the Watcher in the East. Whenever you get something like any of these directions, north, south, east, west, then you can immediately make the cross in your mind, can't you? And what's the direction east? Inwards to the heart. And so um, the, this second sub-ray of the seventh ray is focused inwards to the heart of life. And he is always watching for instructions from this direction because the magician must work with the heart. So it's a guardian position in a way, isn't it? That's right, mm. the guardian of the East. Mm. So the watcher in the East brings in the energies of the heart itself in order to perform all of the magic. And we saw before that you need this energy of the heart in order to liberate life which is the prime work of the magician. And so the Watcher of the East, and this leads you all the way up to the cosmic astral and brings in that energy and tones it down so that it can be utilised to produce all the effects in the, of change of form. When you actually implement love in the implementation of will into form, the potentiality of the that's right absolutely there's no abuse you cannot that's right by this stage and we're talking about someone who's already gone through the stages where any uh, ability of abuse has long been cleansed out in in this alchemical worker Um, the love is the keynote and love is essential in order to pass it through now the first ray and the second ray always work together they are unity um, the first ray penetrates, pierces through the veils, and the second ray builds the form with love. So the highest of the, the seven ray statements of the seventh ray, the first ray, sub-ray quality, is called the custodian of the seventh plan. In other words, this particular being um, on this highest level listens to the word of the the creative logos and the word of the creative logos is that which 
cause all this we see on this planet and in our solar system to come to be. So the seventh plan, or the seventh word if you want, is that which causes the phenomenality of everything we know to be physical, to manifest. And therefore, you're looking at the mantric sound that conveys all this purpose. And so the custodian learns what that plan is for creation, for the creative amplitude of the Logos, and plays their part in that role. And so he contains or is the custodian. That's the plan, or the Shambhalic plan, and this is the way to, to manifest and must manifest, and so he's just simply the instrument a conscious for the manifestation of that plan, whatever it is to be for that cycle. And if everything is cyclic, it's ritualistic, that's what makes it magical. It's done through ritual, through the understanding of the law of cycles. And within this then, you get all of the zodiacal and planetary energies coming through that um, this custodian of the seventh plan must be able to wield, wield correctly. So as the sun retrogresses in the heavens and the planets uh, come into alignment and, and the other cosmic stars move and come into alignment with the sun and so forth, this particular custodian is aware of all of that knowledge. This grand ritual of the, the, the grand architect of the universe and brings it into effect through knowledge of the laws of life, through knowledge of all of the forces and potency that make up life. This is a master magician indeed, yes? An emanation of fundamental second ray that governs our solar system, though within this first ray application. So it gives you a better idea what the first ray is. Those of you who are first ray, please note. You know the laws that govern all of the energy bodies in our solar system, the zodiacal, planetary energies, the circadian rhythms, and you can work with them in a conscious way in order to produce the magical effects needed on the physical plane or any of the other planes of perception. You're saying that first ray beings particularly have to note... The cycles and rhythms of all the forces that compose everything. That's the reason why Moya is, in a sense, the head of hierarchy, the, the centre of what, what they call the, the esoteric um, teachings of the hierarchy, because he is in tune or works directly with all of those forces and energies. You know the difference between an energy and a force? So energy is a, a field of energy, and a force is an application to do a specific job or work. And so he must know all of the energies and where the forces must manifest at the right time and to apply it with the precision amount of, of force to produce the effects that is to be done so that nothing is distorted and what is rightly to be manifested is manifested. This is the first ray. Precision um, application of the mind and the energies that underlie mind to produce the effects on the physical plane. And there's a lot of what you might call martial training 
the warrior spirit. When they were younger, in their former lives, they did lots of military planning and dying and being killed and dying because this is the, the use of the sword and those types of battlefield experience is training them to be very precise in tactics of the use of energy. It's an esoteric science that most don't understand the science of the mass of moving armies fighting each other and, and what that really signifies in terms of first-rate training. If you just think of it as two clashing forces composed of many other subsidiary little forces and the battle is moving in different directions and the master strategist, the, the, the commander-in-chief, the general, is fighting another similar being and one's going to lose and one's going to probably lose their life and the other one will survive depending on how well they use all of the component attributes of that moving mass of forces at their command. First rate training. And then you look at that later on on a much higher level when you're dealing with all the forces and energies that must impinge and impact upon a globe such as this earth so that all the streams of life, the lives and all the karmic interrelationships come to fruition, as they must be and must do if the evolutionary plan is to succeed. And the DB, another big aspect of their thinking, are defeated because they are the counter-army, the counter-strategists. Now, imagine what sort of mind you must have in order to do that for a planet-wide scale. And then you have an idea of what first-rate disciples are being trained to do. Master of wisdom along the first ray is very hard to obtain because of that. Now, the next seven statements deal still the extension of all this, except now we've reversed the whole process. Before we started with the seventh sub-ray and we went to the first, now we start with the first sub-ray and we go to the seventh. Where we start on the second portion or the eighth statement is again from the point of view of an enlightened being, one who wields the seventh ray energy and stands at the highest plane of perception. In other words, a lord of Shambhala. And so the eighth statement is called the invoker of rough or rough, depending how you pronounce it. And this is, is of course, the rough of God. It relates to a statement in the the Revelation of St. John, which speaks of this rough. This uh, rough is technically the energy of the sixth uh, subplane of the cosmic astral. If you can get your mind into the cosmic astral, all of those logi are busy sort of evolving their form of emotions, which we call love. So if you can think of that type of energy, it's the wine press of the wrath of God. And so it's a sixth, seven-ray energy combined that produces an incredible pressure of energy that when it manifests downwards into manifest space and via initiates it comes out in a wrathful form sometimes you see me manifest like that 
and you mistake it in a sense for the emotions when I'm really sort of bringing in this, this rough of God because of your emotions or your mental emotions trying to do something with it so it's the sixth cosmic subray of the astral plane and these energies are real what you can be called love <laughs> in the pure sense of the word yes yeah, outside of our idea. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Invoked by means of the first and seventh rays to impact upon the astral plane to transform desires, emotions and glamours. So when this energy hits initiates such as you are, it produces incredible intensification of your energy body and will throw out all of these things that you don't like about yourselves. Intense emotions, desires, and make you can make you ruffle, angry, irritable very quickly uh, because you have to deal with them. It is the energy of transformation of the initiate of high degree. It is that which drives them forward to do their feats of great endurance of service work, a whole lifetime of amazing accomplishments that now allows them to transform substance, transform what is um, regarded as cosmic dense substance into high spirituality, I suppose. It's the transformation of the domain of mind into abstract mind and then into Dharmakaya. What can we say? It's that which uh, reveals the inner life of God that's been veiled in the form. And so it invokes this quite fierce energy, for the lack of, uh, of any other term, I use the word God. So this quite fierce energy of God to transform substance, to bring about an ending of the entire evolutionary process. If you can think of a, a Logos sort of having connected to a planet such as this Earth and things are going on very slowly and the DB is busy manipulating everything and retarding evolution, then this energy comes in to speed things on, to try to make the wheels turn faster, the wheels of your head lotus, the wheels of the, the chakras of this planet. It's um, very, very high potent energy. And it's the opening and the, and the closing of the, the doors to the dissemination of this energy necessitates the seventh ray because they govern the cycles of the expression thereof. The seventh ray of ceremonial magic or of ritualistic endeavour. So they govern the turning of the wheel of life, of the zodiacal wheel. So the energy comes in through the various zodiacal impacts and produces the effects in the domain of form and then the energy is withdrawn and so every zodiacal sort of sign in on from the inner realms is in the, this is actually in the form of this rough to produce the associated changes. It's not just zodiacal changes, it's racial changes and all sorts of other effects of high energy impacts. And you can see quite clearly the necessity of the seventh ray from a shambolic lord that opens and closes the door for the impact of this quite potent energy. And when you get your tiny little stab of it, it gives you such great feelings of ecstatic joy that you're swooning all over the place. You can barely think with love and devotion for God and flowers and trees and 
divas and things, and for each other. That's, of course, if you're purified. Maybe not purified by all these DB samskaras coming to the surface, and you've got to fight with the DB. So, what happens, this wrath of the Lord, you use your little quota of it, and you zap the DB away. It makes you a warrior of the Lord. Yeah, and it's seven fray potency. Lovely energy, yes, it veils all of the seven rays. And what you have to understand here is the seven fray is the ray that um, governs the cosmic dense physical plane, uh, which all of our seven subplanes are part of. We all influenced or are modified our whole life expression. The cycles, as I said, the wheels turning is the seven fray form of activity. In a sense, it's three seven, and um, the three seven energy is the energy that actually governs our planet as a whole and the mud of the world. That's her specific, unique type of energy dispensation. So there we are, the uh, invoker of Ruff. So one day, hopefully in the far distant future, one or other of you will be invokers of Ruff upon some Shambhala for a planet, sending it into the planet and sort of zapping a lot of entities and they're going into their squealing fits of reaction and then you're withdrawing it and letting them calm a bit and then you zap them again with a different version of the same thing until eventually they all behave and grow up spiritually and grow their wings and fly off into cosmos. Yes, it's something like the rough of the parent for a very, very naughty child. And you can imagine what humanity has done on this planet with their dirty, dirty, dirty emotions, their warlike tendencies. And uh, you get another effect of it, isn't it? Warlike tendencies. The energies come in and humans make war because they can't handle the energy except by throwing out some scars, which generally are the negative some scars. Therefore, it brings to the surface karma that must be looked at. So this is the wrath of God. And have any of you actually felt the effect of this wrath? Okay, good. You know what it's about. On a tiny, tiny scale. But imagine what it's like for a great being in Shambhala that has to bear the energy and then pour it forth at the right cycle sometimes. Okay, the second one, therefore the ninth of the statement, is... And I hope you get an idea, anyway, of, of the high level of, of expression that we're looking at here, that DK is looking at. It's Shambhala and Shambhalic dispensation. So, again, you get the second subray lord of this seventh ray in Shambhala, who is the keeper of the magical word. Oh, you can say, oh, yeah, it sounds like a good thing to do. It's magic. It's a word. We can keep it. But this um, anchors into manifestation the word of creation, embodying the sum of planetary and surgical energies. And I'm going to here note sort of the Cancer-Capricornian interrelationship. And so this particular word of creation, remember, it's not so much the OM or the OM, which is the word of liberation. This is the seventh ray, after all. It's the seventh ray version of that, which is the, the, the sevenfold word that comes into manifestation, affecting or impinging upon all the kingdoms of nature and affecting their liberation um, via the form 
rather than rather than via a um, human unit sort of sounding out an om in order to expand consciousness. It's actually pushing forward the entire evolutionary milieu through seven planes of perception, through seven root races of human evolution, through seven kingdoms of nature. So this again works with the invoker of Raf because the energies come to this first sub-ray lord and then comes to the second ray lord and they've got, this lord has got to keep that whole mandala of all the mantric sounds of all of nature in situ and to psychically manifest the right ones in order to produce the response and whatever aspect of nature of the kingdoms you can think of all of these plants and the flowers and the minerals and birds and, and the animals and all of that they all have to be stimulated let's say nothing of the deeper kingdom rightly and psychically with impulsive energy through a creative sound to which the divas respond automatically commands them to act and then they produce the karmic effects on the world of forms and on the inner realms as well because you have to think of multi-dimensional perception isn't it a wonderful concept of sound and light and form producing revolving around and producing evolution of different lives life streams is probably the best um, responses to them psychically pulsating and therefore you get the appearance of dinosaurs the extinction of dinosaurs the appearance of, of birds of different forms, shapes, colours and animals and all the rest of it and eventually we get a human unit and so forth evolving and the appearance of uh, the kingdom of souls and that whole evolution And this is the word that is um, kept by this magical worker the second sub-ray, seventh ray very powerful beings these aren't they and you can see also this integrates all words into a unity this is the second ray it brings all into one complete scheme of activity one mandala and so all of the various um, potencies of sound are all incorporated into one grand harmony the second ray and here the the magical word, for instance, the, the numbers at the 22, which Jenny uh, is seen in terms of the zodiacal and planetary energies. And so it's the word that integrates all of those zodiacal and planetary energies of our solar system. So the energies are coming from within to the solar system and that are indigenous within the solar system, all finely balanced. And that little part of the solar system which our planet plays all of those words are all integrated into one grand harmonious unit. Imagine having the mind to be able to balance all that and see the whole course of evolution pass through the mind's eye as you emit sound after sound at the appropriate time. And this is what this particular second ray lord does. Of course, they all work as a unity. None of them are distinct from each other. They all are a sevenfold emanation. In the um, Bible, they're called Elohim. It's a plural in the in the Hebrew, or Elohim, however it's pronounced. So the third one is called the Temple Guardian, 
And most would look at the nice, beautiful temple such as we got here, and we got the hierophant doing lovely rituals, looking after all of the artifacts, these holy of holies behind the shrine, and singing out nice magic sounds and having a nice, respectful audience bowing and worshipping. That's the symbol of the seventh ray that's normally given. And I'm sure that's the type of idea that most of you had, that Jenny's sort of seen as dressed in violet and sometimes with um, other colours and insignia and symbols in the exoteric form of magic. The Temple Guardian. However, this is the third sub-ray, and therefore we're looking at um, divine mathematical or divine exact mathematical activity to express the wisdom of the pentad of the Dhyani Buddhas, their wisdom of the lords of life and how they manifest in terms of the fivefoldness of manifesting divinity of consciousness of the five senses, the five lower kingdoms of nature, which we know as the mineral, the plant, the animal, the human and the divine. You can sometimes say the diva, but the divine, the kingdom that are enlightened. And so this particular temple guardian is responsible for not just the magical invocation, sending out these five pranic energies to awaken the five senses, but also receiving the response from those five kingdoms receiving the devotion, the respect. And so the responding sound is also received, and then that is properly orchestrated, so that the keeper of the magical word knows how to sound out their words in order to liberate or give the next step forward of evolution of any of those kingdoms according to response. Does this make sense to you? So it's just not a matter of mumbling invocations and doing ritual. The ritual is there because the ritual emanates or disseminates the sound, the purpose of the, from the keep of the um, magical word. It disseminates it in such a way that it flows through the nadi system of the body of God. And then also the rituals then taking the response and work out the process of the transmutation of the negative energies or the sluggish entities or how things must be arranged for the future. So it guards their secret or the secret of the magical word via the vows of appropriate ritual. So have you ever thought that when you do ritual, the purpose of your ritual is to unveil that which has been veiled? You understand that? What has been veiled is what, I'll use this term God because it's a very quick way of just saying the lords of Shambhala. What has been veiled is what your body is and your consciousness veil. You've got your heart centre, the head centre, these chakras, right? Um, And the ritual is to unveil that which God has concretized in form. So that in in right cyclic timing, the consciousness attributes awaken that eventually produces liberating thoughts, experience of divine love, 
and all those wonderful breezes that work in your head that make you feel like you're a diva with wings flying in heavenly abodes. Right? That's what this particular guardian does. That's what ritual does. And you emulate the keeper of the magical word. You start to learn those words, or your version of it. So the keeper has sort of, in a sense, formed the, the words of creation or the words of concretization, but you're learning the reciprocal words of liberation at your level in order to awaken the hidden life. The sanctum of sanctums is your heart, and the sanctum of sanctums in the temple is that which is veiled in the most holy shrine. And most um, most temples do have a specific little inner sanctum where they have the heart of Jesus or whatever their symbol of divinity, most holy of holies is. And of course, only the temple hierophant can touch that. It's like the uh, priest is consecrated to bless the wafer and give it to those that have come and have gone through their the sacrificial penance to be holy enough to receive it. Revealing only to those worthy supplicants that have developed the bodhicitta or whatever the version of bodhicitta that is appropriate, the consciousness attribute that they can receive this blessing from the temple hierophant. So this is again a seventh ray function because it necessitates the concept of ritual necessitates the concept of understanding the cycles of life and that's what a seventh ray disciple is supposed to do work with the cycles of life inherently respecting the dawn diurnal cycles the moon cycles, the lunar cycles, the sun cycles and all of the other cycles that manifest and pulsate through the planet and the ritual so symbolizes or expresses that so the temple guardian the third subray and you can see here that the temple guardian also (coughs) works with the diva kingdom naturally enough their sounds their songs because the divas is what veils the form and they actually have to liberate the divas in order to liberate the life or to reveal the life and therefore this is the mother's specific Department. Isn't it wonderful to think, as I said before, the three seven energy in many ways is the mother of the world's energy or dispensation, and she is the temple guardian for this entire planet. She reveals the hidden life through magical invocation on her level. We're now to the fourth sub-ray of the seventh ray, and it's called the representative of God. So whenever you get to a fourth sub-ray of anything, then you're getting the middle between two extremes, the mirror that reflects one into the other. And the numbers, the representative, add to 84, which immediately brings us to Libra. And Libra is, in this particular case, because it's the fourth ray, it's the hub of the wheel that's turning. It sort of directs energies to any of the points of the wheel as it is turning around. And this is the wheel of life, the wheel of the law. You can call it the wheel of samsara. And it stands in the middle of the wheel of life, reflecting divine activity and love wisdom into manifestation to bring order into the wheel of fortune, 
Well, I use the term wheel of fortune in my little quick notes here or samsara is because we humans see this wheel in terms of fortunes, good luck, bad luck, terrible karma, good karma. Somehow somebody's died and will is a million bucks, good fortune or whatever it is. This is the this wheel that sort of spins, turns around and gives you all of those opportunities in life that um, hopefully should make you enlightened. And so this representative of God therefore works with the manifesting karma that is samsara and doles out the peculiarities of the karma of groups of beings and so forth. Brings into form the will of God, if you want, the wrath of God. So a bit difficult to to properly understand because it stands in the middle of the wheel and is not affected by any of those energies that are coming through, just simply dispense it according to the way it must go, cyclically. You can see all the time the concept of the seventh ray has got to deal with the law of cycles. The circadian levels, it's like your heartbeat beating and keeping you alive. And the seventh ray does that. <laughs> it beats the heart. It keeps everything alive. It's, um, therefore, it's a representative of God because it is the love of God that it represents the heart beating. Now, the fifth point, then this, of course, then brings us down to the mental plane because um, the other, the higher, uh, we've just gone to is the representative of God brings us to the energy of Buddhi, the Buddhic plane, the temple guardian to Atma, to the keeper of the magical world, to Anapadaka, and the invoker of Ruff to Edai. So you'll be going down the planes. And the mental plane, of course, as you know, is dual, it's higher abstract mind and lower concrete mind and therefore DK gives us the one who lifts to life and that means from below looking upwards to some concept of manifesting divinity the numbers at 31 times 3 31, 13 times 3 it, it all is divine activity whichever way you look at it to elevate mind this is mind with a small m uh, to mind with a capital M. In other words, from the concrete mind, from the mind that's involved in samsara. And therefore we're looking at a human kingdom. Before, in these other sort of um, statements, it wasn't just the human kingdom, we're looking at also at the other kingdom of nature, the sum of nature. Now we're focusing more upon that aspect of nature where mind is developed, namely the human kingdom, and how human beings must transform their concrete, petty, self-focused, belittling mind into abstract, spacious mind, the mind that cognizes all instantaneously. And so the one who lives to life is this particular seventh ray lord of the fifth sub-ray who works to uplift the cycles of mind, of thinking, thought processes of humanity so that eventually human beings can reveal life in their civilization. And here you have the concept of civilizations coming and going, nation-states appearing and disappearing and producing 
that whole march, what, what some people call the march of civilization, the march of cultures, the appearance and disappearing of different types of cultures from the Atlantean through the Egyptian and, say, the Roman era and then the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, um, the Enlightenment, the Reformation and renaissance before that and of course then the industrial age and where we are now this is all the the lifting of life is it not the appearance of mind and the transformation of mind at ever and ever and ever higher arcs of expression of course right now we have concrete mind dominating and hopefully over the next few hundred years this concrete mind will start to be superseded by the type of mind you're all developing the abstract mind, the mind to think in terms of high ideals and cycles. The redeemed substance, yeah. What has to happen here is the use of the will over the destined cycles of expression. In other words, if you don't develop the will to overcome your sluggish, lazy, concrete, selfish, self-centered thinking, you're not getting it anywhere. Therefore, it's divine will. And, of course, this um, one who lifts to life, in a sense, is also the battler of dark brotherhood thought structures, that which produces death and veils the life. So you've got to overcome those forces and forms that keep the life downtrodden in the mire of samsara. So here we have the fifth ray lord working with all the destined cycles of expression of humanity. Ah, now we get to the wonderful sixth sub-ray. Most of you love the concept of sixth sub-ray, I'm sure. And this one's called the Lord of Death. What do you think the Lord of Death actually is? It's the ritual cyclic potency of the seventh ray to produce death to people's emotions and desires to eventually end the astral plane itself. This is the externalization of the energies of divine wrath. And it comes out on the physical plane with people's or humanity's warlike tendencies. They like to stab each other with sword and slaughter and maim and kill and do all those wonderful things in order to acquire territory and uh, concepts of power over many and steal resources from other nations and so forth. That's the, the lower version of it. But this energy of wrath comes down onto the astral plane and people's emotions are stimulated to do those sorts of things because their selfish aptitudes and self-centered nature and um, separativeness and all the rest of it comes in to play and enforces those or reinforces those in the lower grade humanity and, of course, in nation states. Therefore, you have much spilling of blood due to the wrath of God. But that's one way of learning. I've given you all first-rate types a bit of lesson and and the symbolism of war and and death and what war and soldiers actually have to experience and how quick a road it is to enlightenment. So, yes, eventually it's the energy that you use in order to go through these terrible, terrible struggles of the disciple as symbolized by Scorpio where you battle with your lower natures and um, your desire principle and all of those things that disciples find so hard to let go of 
and uh, finally, with uh, some sort of sigh of relief, they manage to pass their second initiation. And then they look up, oh no, I've got to die on that cross yet. <laughs> There's a fourth initiation to go, and, uh, and so the struggle goes on and on, and uh, until even the soul itself dies. And so the Lord of Death psychically brings into manifestation the energy that enables the devotee, the aspiring one, to aspire to conquer and master the lower threefold nature, personality nature, based on their desires and their glamours and their love of self, their selfishness, and how to overcome those things. And most of you are quite happy to receive some energy from divinity and instructions as well to help you master the lower threefold self. Because the consequence of mastering those things is a lovely flood of energy that comes in and gives you lovely revelations and visions of divas and all the beautiful lights and things of your meditation world. That comes via this Lord of Death. So be thankful that there's a, a great, uh, I can virtually say, a diva potency here that works with this sixth sub-ray, seventh-ray energy that brings the, the wrath of God energy from the cosmic astral right onto the form to transform the waters. And eventually, as the Bible says, there shall be no more sea. This is the revelation of St. John. I can't quote you the exact passage, but you can look up in the concordance and find it. There will be no more sea. That's what the revelation says. And that, and because the first heaven and the first earth shall have passed away. And there's a second one to come. Anyway, that's uh, got to do with the ending of the astral plane upon this planet. And it's not going to happen now, is it? My prediction is that somewhere near the end of the sixth root race, the seas will dry up certainly the astral seas of humanity. I mean, just entering into the sixth root race. So, so you're only just starting to enjoy the astral plane. You are, thank well, you. I mean, humanity, <laughs> the whole. I see a lot of squawking and pulling of hair, gnashing of teeth, <laughs> as most people sort of go through all the astral miseries and ups and downs of life. And now finally you're saying, after all these years of this, I can finally enjoy my emotional body and because it's full of love and it's aspiring upwards to God. Yes, thank you. I was thinking of all of humanity with their televisions and indulgences of the senses. And Do you think they actually enjoy that? Or, or they wake up out of their dream and then sort of have to go to work every day and, and then find that their life is crashing around their heads because their stupid governments are stealing their pensions and doing all those sorts of things and taxing them to death because the bankers are, uh, are taking all the money. So finally we get to the seventh of these statements. Therefore, in a sense, the seventh sub-ray of the seventh it's almost an anomaly. I always call the seventh, the particular number of a particular ray as the holding ray. It's never a proper ashram. However, be that as it may, the energies finally come to the physical plane and here we have the one who feeds the sacred fire. And you can see that the temple guardian and the one who feeds the sacred fire are really aspects of each other. It's some of the work that the temple hierophant is supposed to do. And most temple hierophants, there's an eternal flame that's burning on the altar. In modern days, they normally have a light that's on day and night. 
The symbolism is correct, right? The eternal flame. Sometimes in Christian temples it may be a lovely little light in the heart of Jesus or something like that, and or in the heart of Mary, and she's praying over this eternal flame. So the eternal flame is the part of the function of the temple hermit and means that the presence of God is always there in the temple. So the hierophant comes in and the first thing they do is they bow before the temple and they light the flame, or in our case, the candles. And the ritual is done around the sacred flame because of what it symbolises. And most of you can think, oh yes, it's the light in, the, in each of the chakras, the light in the mind, it's the light of the heart, it's the aura that's expanding many, many sort of levels of it. You can look at the Deva Kingdom and so forth. Now, this particular level of it, it relates to the process of awakening of Kundalini, the, the fire that's at the, the base of the spine. And the sacred flame is really that fire that is liberated and awakens all the chakras. And that's done right in the domain of form. And technically the temple hierophant is the one who has done that and is endeavouring to show the, the disciples how to do that, how to liberate that sacred flame. Of course, the flame, of course, is just simply the flame of love, of your ardent desire to help save all sentient beings, help serve humanity, um, to love all of life. That's another aspect of the sacred flame. It's a different flame than the Kundalini fire because it's a blue flame and it's a, a cool flame. Whereas the Kundalini fire is, is quite warming, it's quite hot. It's fierce. Okay, so it, liberation of life and all of the chakras, symbolised by perpetuating the burning temple flame. I did have a flash then when you mentioned that the one who feeds the sacred fire just got this flash of of feeding the fire by your own sacrifice. In other words, you know, like that oh, yes. your flesh, your flesh burning up because it's that. That's right. That's the true. And if you look around, you see these dakinis with fire all around them. They've jumped into the flame and they're consuming their fire themselves with the fire of their own devotion and love and radiance mm. and power. Yes. What it really is is your samskara has been consumed, mm. burnt away into nothingness or into the oneness of non dual reality. And it creates the flame. That's right, the flame. This is also the process that awakens your inner powers, your powers to transform, to transmute substance. And here, of course, we've got the transmutative fire that comes into expression, and this is divine alchemy. In the seventh ray, if you follow the gist of the seventh ray, is all about alchemy, because it can bring these high energies into the form to transform the substance itself because it's the custodian of that flame that transforms. And so those are the seven, seven statements and then after that we have nine more. The nine can be put into the form of this eight-spoked wheel of direction which all of you are quite familiar with now and anyone that wants to be more familiar you can read Alice Bailey a little bit but my book's in great detail for this. And in this particular case, there's nine, because it does relate to the nine steps of initiation 
or just has a hint of the process of attainment of initiation of all the levels of initiation and you have to go through these nine steps so as to speak and also then the process of alchemy happens the point in the center is included in the whirling sphere because the one who feeds the sacred fire is also the whirling sphere the fire comes out and turns all of the chakras they all ablaze and burning and swirling and turning So if you can think of this wonderful process of the liberation of your inner self, of your consciousness, attributes, that which makes you enlightened. So the whirling sphere is the awakening of the head lotus by means of the cyclic dance of the liberated kununi. This is the shishuma. And as we see the the kini, They have the flame around him, Nataraj, the dancing Shiva with the flame of fire around him. That's the the concept. And this is the head centre starting to be ablaze as each of the chakras, each of the petals of the head are being consumed with fire and swirling and dancing around each other. And this is a ritualistic process because you have cycles within cycles within cycles so each petal becomes inflamed and more and more of your head is awakened in times that a whole awakening process is implied here and this is the whirling sphere. Any chakra can be the whirling sphere but technically we're really looking at the expansion of the head lotus. So at the very centre of the mandala Then we have the next one. In the eastern direction of the mandala is the sword of the initiator. And you can see we're talking about initiation and initiation process. I didn't go into this particular aspect of it, but I was writing the book. I would have to go into this in in a little bit more detail in terms of these nine statements. And um, you can see if we're talking about the whirling sphere at the top, it's either the third initiation or the fifth initiation that we're looking at. The The whirling sphere, if it's talking about the head lotus expanding, then it's the third or the fifth year. The Sashumna Nadi has been liberated and awakening all those um, petals of the lotus. Now, the sword of the initiator is the eastern direction, which is inwards to the heart of life, and it's the heart centre that initiates. You're learning the mysteries of the love-wisdom principle, of what love really is all about and what it's intended to do, how it functions. Initiate again, here's the temple hierophant, because they're the lord of love, and projecting the liberating fires to the needed direction, though always via the heart centre. Otherwise, you get DBD as a result. The problem with the seventh ray, as you probably can gather, if the will is misdirected, if the mind is misdirected, there you have dark brotherhood. It has great potency and great potency to control the elements and forces of life through ritualistic activity. And if it's not directed by the heart, it is dark brotherhood. And therefore, the one who wields the sword, um, the sword that can cut asunder, the sword that can pierce, the sword that can produce pain and suffering if need be, then we're talking about Dark Brotherhood's sword here. In this particular case, it must be the one who wields the heart, who embodies the principle of love and demonstrates wisdom in the application of the sword. Because 
all of you understand also that the sword is used to zap away dark brotherhood influences and you use the energy of the heart to do so, not USP. Try not to use USP anyway. So the sword of the initiator and the initiator stands in the east in order to benedict, bless, awaken, liberate the young ones. And this sword, incidentally, is the energy of bodhicitta the energy of the Enlightenment consciousness is that which drives the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva again manifests ritualistically in service work. So the sword is your compassionate action. And what are you busy doing with your sword? You're zapping away other people's samskaras, you're making them squawk and squall and squirm because what you have to say they don't really want to hear because they don't want to work upon their samskaras they don't want to work upon their emotions they don't want to fix up their psychology they'd rather do anything else and so we have our numbers are very few because there's a lot of people that don't want to do those things they're not interested in the sort of initiator Uh, they're not interested in your compassion they're not interested really they're interested theoretically in the concept of becoming divine but they don't want to do the work they prefer to somebody just tap them on the head with some lovely sort of wand and voila, an enlightened being, or pay some money for it. It's just not that way. So there you have it. Ritualistically, you manifest this service arena for those that receive the blessing of your sword. And sometimes some of my disciples would use the sword to cut off their heads because their head is full of grunge and gunk and it's not thinking properly. You're either fighting others, you're fighting against the general stream of events or you're fighting yourself and it's this, you know, whacking this, that and the other and a lot of that's going on. Although it is a sword, it's often very blunt, isn't it? Just don't bludgeon people around you. (laughs) It's better to clean-cut sword than to to have all that bludgeon energy. Well, you can see quite clearly that it's the initiator, therefore it's the energy that awakens the initiation process. Mm. And that's what we're here for, and that's the reason I term the squealing and squawking sort of disciples, because on the whole, they don't like the process of having to work upon themselves with this energy coming through from divinity and you can see clearly that it's again ritualistic it comes into right at the right timing in order to put the energy into you in order to battle your samskaras okay so that's the second and that's the direction east inwards to the heart of life and it necessitates the, the projecting of the antikranas in the various directions of space that produce liberation. Or that's productive of enlightenment or where the samskaras lie that must be transformed. Now, this third point of the remaining nine is called the divine alchemical worker. And you can see the word alchemy now comes into it. In the first one we're looking at the head centre. In the second one we're looking at the heart centre. What centre do you think the divine alchemical worker is working specifically through? Throat? That's it. You've got it. The throat centre. And so here, why is that? Because 
they have to activate the creative word, either the OM or the OM, depending on which way they do it. And so the alchemical worker works with the creative word. And via the pentad of the remaining ones. To liberate all elements of form, so they transform, transmute base natures into spiritual gold, which is the symbolism of the second initiation, and then you get the third initiation. The divine alchemical worker works specifically with the element of fire. The sword of the initiator is working with the element air. And so we get these different elements coming in. This is the Ida energy within the body of deity that divine alchemical workers working with, with the Deva kingdom specifically. Alchemy has worked with the Deva kingdom. The sword of the initiator is working with consciousness, the Pingala string, and the whirling spheres working with the Shashumna energy and directed in all directions of space and multidimensionally, fourth-dimensional at the same time. So you get an idea, therefore, that divine alchemy necessitates the use of the AUM sound because you're controlling the various diva potency in order to transform the substance of the elements around, of the entities around, of some scars. The divine alchemical worker is not just working, therefore, with human consciousness, though that's the ultimate prize, but they're working with the streams of life also below human and with the divas, liberating the life of the diva that are trapped into the form of whatever the kingdom of nature is. Then, therefore, the alchemical worker has learnt the sounds of nature. Now, the fourth point of this particular ninefold listing is called the builder of the square. And this is the direction self, self to little ones. And here, the square relates to the four major chakras below the diaphragm. So we've gone from the head to the heart to the throat, and now we've gone to blow the diaphragm. And those four chakras are the sacral, the base of the spine, the solar plexus, and the splenic center. So it builds the square of perfection of the energies that are circulating below the diaphragm. And this is where everyone's problems are, yes? all of those rampant desires, those murky emotions, all of those self-initiating egotistical forms of activity that come from the solar plexus itself, all of samskaras of lust and whatever that you think of. There we have it. And so the builder of the square is busy working with the energies to cleanse that whole bloated diaphragm centre. This is the fourth and therefore it also is a fourth ray energy, and it's looking at the little ones and looking at the entire elemental forms that compose the bodily nature itself and all of the little pranas that are circulating through what we call the inner round in order to transform them into lovely little enlightening divas. This awakens cities. This awakens psychic powers via the ordained ritual of the magical work of the temple builder. And here we have the master mason, the whole symbolism of masonry and the masonic tradition, 
is veiled in this builder of the square, the temple precincts, and the trowel, the right angle, all of the implements, the compass is used in order to do this building. And the sum total of all of that knowledge that we've gone up to now is focused upon this particular building process. Because what are you trying to build? You're trying to build a perfected temple for the habitation of the human spirit, for the monad. So your whole bodily nature, you're going to get rid of all of the, the, the crappy elements, yes, and you're going to put into it lovely divas, lovely energies, and transform it all into a body of living light, something that is fit for God to live in. That is the living temple, and you're walking around in it. And, of course, from the point of view of you building the square of your personality vehicle, and the square is also, of course, as you know, the physical, the etheric, the emotional, and the mental so those four planes of um, perceptions, they all have to be cleansed and built four square, so as to speak, which is the four square of your temples. And it's then it builds the temples of initiation all over the planet. Since divine geometry, you're making some sort of mandala based on a square. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the pyramid, actually. That forms the pyramidal shape. Pyramid, yeah. uh, so it's the, the divine geometry, yes, but it's the temple builder, it's the mason, it's the master mason, it's working with the energies of the grand architect of the universe and formulating and bringing onto the manifest plane the qualities that were designed by the divine architect. And so wherever the builder of the square is, there's the temple built. A temple such as this one, a temple wherever the mandala of the divine plane is to be established until eventually you get the externalization of the New Jerusalem under the earth or what we call Shambhala. And this whole planet becomes sacred. These four up till now also relate to the ephahs. The um, head lotus is the first ephah, the uh, heart center is the second ephah, the throat center or the third point, the diviner, our chemical worker, is working with the energies from the third ephah, and the builder of the square is working with the energies of the fourth ephah. And within the fourth ephah, so all of these, this is where the chakras are, and on the fourth ephah you get all the, the, the chakras below the diaphragm and the entire inner round, which is all the minor chakras. So the remaining five relate to a different process altogether. What they relate to now is the actual alchemical work itself. And so these five statements is a very um, shorthand notation of the process of divine alchemy. And I almost don't want to reveal this, but here it goes. <laughs> okay, so I'll just give you these five. So now you know you've gone to the four ethers and you're now into the physical plane itself into the nitty-gritty of physical plane life and the mechanism of transforming the substance or the elements of the form into divinity, into that philosopher's stone. And you're now, each one of you, a master mason. 
you've joined this most occult fraternity that is very exoteric on the physical plane, of course, and they've distorted and lost their, their most of their their hidden symbolism and mystery. But in their rituals and their rites is hidden the symbolism of the formation of this planet and, and liberation and all the rest of it. Now, these um, next five statements are called the orienting force, the fiery unifier, the key to the mystery, the expression of the will, and the revealer of beauty. So there we have it, five stages of the alchemical process. Now, the orienting force is the southwest direction, which is understanding, whereas the alchemical worker was the southeast direction of expression, the builder of the square is the southern direction of the manifestation of the little ones. But now we're looking at understanding. The understanding of the work to be done. The work of the alchemist. He has the full knowledge, or she. I presume there are some female alchemists. There's going to be anyway in the future. The full knowledge of the creative process of the way God has manifested the universe. Implanted in their brain. The brain is this whirling sphere of energies awakened. Well, technically. The alchemical process also is a way of getting there, to awaken that brain, to arise, to kindle any fire. There's the symbolism both ways, because you start with the raw materials, the red earth, the lead oxide, and the sulphur. And you've got your equipment, the alembic, the furnace, distillation unit, and... For most of you, probably some sort of gas mask where you'd be frightened of <laughs> the fumes of the sulphur and the poisonous fumes of the, the mercury that's going to be crystallised and recrystallised. Matter of fact, knowing most of you probably won't even try it, being totally fearful of, of those poisonous products. But however, the alchemists did. Anyway, we're up to the orienting force. It's the abstract mind. It's the, the actually awakened, illumined mind because as I said it's full of the knowledge and it's going to now orient its energies in the right direction in order to transform the substance now everything is fire you understand in our philosophy the mineral kingdom is just crystallized fire it's all an expression of the mind of God the um, Bible says that God is a consuming fire you don't need to go further than that now, the whole mystery of life is there. The whole mystery of the universe is there. God is consuming fire. You could spend your whole life analysing that one statement and not getting beyond it, because that's the way to become God, to become a consuming fire. And all life is embodied fire. Every atom of substance. What is it? E equals MC squared? Energy and matter are interrelated according to the factor of the speed of light squared, whatever that means, because there's a little question mark there as to time. See, light travels through space and according to a unit of time. And if you're a real philosopher, you would ask, E equals mc squared. You'll know that all you, you know, this Einsteinian thing, energy equals matter times the speed of light squared. But then you would have to ask, what is the speed of light 
In other words, light moves over a certain distance over time. And so the whole crux of this entire equation is what is time? And this is the problem of physicists. They don't really know. They speak of a time-space continuum. But what happened before that universe came into being? What is time? And time is really just the evolution of consciousness. As your consciousness evolves, that's the measuring of time. There's no other way of measuring it. Okay, so the whole matter of the universe, the whole energy of the universe, therefore, is contained in your consciousness. Okay, that's the liberation of the mind of God trapped in matter. And so the alchemist is trying to free that mind, that trapped energy. And all of you know that every atom is just basically quantified mind, as I've said, but the physicists say just quantified energy, just pure energy. Okay, so liberate that energy. I dare any of you to try that one. (laughs) Atomic explosion in your body? Spontaneous human combustion for those that don't really know how to do it? Basically, you're talking about the abstract mind that orients all towards Shambhala, that orients the forces in substance. So you can get the image of the poor old alchemist from hundreds of years ago living in that dungy little dungeon there with the fire going underneath their retort and they've got all the elements there. They're thrown in their sulfur and their red lead and it's bubbling away. It's all oriented upwards. See, its purpose is to send it upwards. And the abstract mind is simply there alive. So you understand that this um, orienting force must be used initially in order to direct the whole bubbling, seething mass of sulfur, the stone that burns, and the red lead that turns into this liquid metal together in such a way that it's not going to poison you and will vaporise it all up the retort to produce the types of effects that you imagine (laughs) it's going to produce. Full knowledge. Okay, this is the abstract mind. So we've got a pentad now of energies. And um, so the builder of the square has got a square, but above that or below it, whichever way you want, is a pentagram coming out of it. This is the symbol. So, for instance, if you saw a square with pentagrams coming out of it, you would immediately know that this is talking about divine alchemy. If you were reading the sacred books that D.K. was reading when he was translating all this. Just simply that type of symbol. Maybe a bit of colour. And then, just put it into words. Now, the next one... So it's the sixth of these points, and it directs west, which is outwards into the field of service. It's called the fiery unifier. And you can see quite clearly here, the energy is fire, whereas the orienting force, the energy was ether. So we're talking about five different types of prana. So the fiery unifier unifies people's thoughts into a unified expression, or into expression that is oneness, of love and mind, which directs psychically the energy of fire to cleanse materialistic samskaras. In the alchemical process, however, this fire strips the life 
from the form. So there you have, originally, the whole material matrix in the retort, and now you have to actually draw the life or the essence of the form out of it. And you need the fiery unifier. In other words, you need the heat, the furnace underneath in order to bring it all together in order to, to produce the volatile essences. And this is what fire does. It's the fire of your mind. It's the transmutative element. Fire, is that's what it is. It transmutes base samskaras into high refined enlightenment consciousness or enlightenment attributes. Isn't that lovely to think that all of these base samskaras, these, these base desires and emotions and all the rest of it is the base metals and each one of those things that hinder you at this particular process in your life, when you work upon them, transform them, transmute them, they become enlightenment attributes. They again make you wise, liberated, yes? Think about the transformation process. And so the alchemist is doing that within themselves and also within the mineral kingdom. The fire unifier is the the fires of mind per se. You can think of it as the concrete mind. It's the mind working at all the levels of it. And the concrete mind works quite well to transform base metals, to make furnaces and produce all these brass objects we see around and everything else of the form. It's got its specific function. It's the furnace in which everything is is wrought, is moulded, and new shapes are created in which the the life essence can be evaporated from. The life essence is the abstract mind, if you want, but the furnace is where it's all happening. That's the fiery mind. So the fiery unifier adds the fire, strips life from the form. Then we have the key to the mystery. The key to the mystery, this is the added flux to the activity of the fire. It's the love wisdom principle. It's the trials of the mercurial mind of man. Basically, this key to the mystery, therefore, is the um, astral plane. We're looking at the flux that transforms that where, when all this is happening. It's, in a sense, the sulfur. It's the astral plane itself. And it's transmuted into love-wisdom. All those petty desires and emotions and attachments and sensuality, the objective of all of that is to become wise and loving. That's the reason why you attach yourself to partners, why you make children, why you raise the children, you live in a society. And in all of these types of things, these aspects you are learning to use your emotions to get away from selfish and sensual pursuits to more loving pursuits. Yes? That's the purpose or the foundation of love wisdom. And this is the flux. This is the key to the mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery of God, the mystery of the life trapped within the form, and the key is this flux that is added, which is pure energy, in a sense, the energy of the wrath of God that eventually sort of distills right through into the physical form as your transforming substance. And that then is your key. Eureka! It's your emotions, but transformed into love and wisdom. Added into the still, and uh, away you go. You bubble and burn all this um, poisonous metal, 
the fiery sulphur, which ooh, a terrible smell. I don't know if any of you have ever burnt sulphur. It's incredibly pungent. It'll burn your nostrils out very fast if you're going to... You know, that's uh, terrible. Anyway, so there's your key to the mystery, that very poisonous, um, volatile substance that makes the mercury go through all its transformations and the mercury is your consciousness of a human unit. The sulphur technically is the diva kingdom. So you get the diva kingdom and the human unit interrelated bubble them away in the fires of mind and the retort of God and eventually you get enlightenment principles. That's wonderful. So you can imagine these old alchemists sort of busy there sort of year after year going through the trials and tribulations of mercury refining and refining, calcifying and refining and refining and bubbling away and making a more and more refined form of the mercurious quicksilver substance which is your mind until eventually they get some essence at the end which they are very happy with. Of course, very few alchemists have ever got that far because they don't know the ingredient of love wisdom. And this is what's going to be done. You've got to add some of that and you've got to know the divas and the way they work with it all. Okay, so key to the mystery integrates all aspects of the lives into a oneness. So, first of all, the fire unifier strips all the life from the form, and then once all the lives have been stripped, then they have to be integrated into a unity, a proper combination. So they're recombined. Right? You think of it in terms of your emotions and desires and all those mental phobias that you may have and fears and whatever it is. You cleanse all of them, and then they have to be recombined into a package that makes you uh, wisdom enlightened being they all have to be properly integrated and then utilised in such a way that other beings can gain from it this particular direction of the key to the mystery is the northwestern direction which is goodwill it's the emetory expression of your whole life process is the key to the mystery control your emotions master them and out you go into the cosmos being a radiant child of the universe saying goodwill, goodwill, I love you, I love you I love you all, all the time but this energy of goodwill is your key note it's the note of your monad it's your fundamental ray essence and every being in the cosmos will be able to recognize your goodwill this energy, this sound that comes from your harmonious sphere of your perfected being do you understand that sound, that colour, that radiance that comes from you once you come out of that vessel because all the life has been stripped from the form and then reintegrated into a beautiful package of, of radiant love and beauty, joy, all those things. Now we get the expression of the will. This is the northern direction, upwards, to the kingdom of God. The plane here is the dense physical Everything to do with the death physical must go straight up. You're directing you all upwards to the kingdom of God. And you've got to use the will to do this. You can't do any of this work without the use of the will. And this is divine will, the radiant will of God. You are now anchoring it onto the physical plane. You're bringing the highest energy into the form and now to, to transmute that. Right? So the entire material world all of the lives now are being directed straight up 
into the heavenly realms until there's no such thing as form left and it's all been etherealized. Made, I can't say immaterial, but non-material, right? It's turned into energy. Okay, so the entire material magica is turned upwards in the retort or the distillation unit. So you can imagine this distillation unit with all these little parts of it, and so it's being distilled and redistilled, distilled and redistilled until the volatile essence is all that's left. Nothing down there. Maybe a bit of residue gunk that has to be recycled for the next cycle. So all of life becomes refined by means of the will until the life of the forms are consubstantiated with the living spirit of God. So spirit and matter are integrated into a beautiful, radiant expression of whatever you are at this stage. But your form is gone. The body is immaterial. At this particular stage, of course, in the books, in the holy books, it's when the master magician, the sitter, can go and fly in the air, walk through rock, suddenly appear in another part of the world. You know, those types of psychic powers. The form is immaterial. It's, it's an illusion. It's after Jesus was crucified and then he suddenly appeared after and he left the tomb and he suddenly appeared to the two men working at Emmaus and he just appeared in front of them and talked to them and then disappeared, that sort of thing, and appeared in the room of the disciples. This is where we're talking about here. The expression of the will. The will is all that. When it's divinely ordained will, when it's coming from your monad and when it's properly transforming the form. It's dense physical. And finally, we get the revealer of beauty. This is the northeast direction of unity. And here we have the wonderful philosopher's stone. It's revealed in all its beauty and all its glory, and it can transform all base metals into gold. So this um, base metals into spiritual gold and the energy of gold is this beautiful radiant aura of hierarchy. And that's the meditation you start off with, the journey to the sun. That's what you enter into. And so it's the beginning of this process of transforming your base metals into hierarchy. And that's the unity of all the brothers and sisters in hierarchy singing the same song of joy and golden energy for all sentient beings. And here's your philosopher's stones, and this is the Ephric body. So, as I said, the substance has been all refined until there's nothing but an ephric body left and the physical form is a Mahavi Rupa, an illusional body of form and it can appear or disappear at the will of the initiate. Looking forward to being in such a body? No more attachments. Okay, so there you have the story of the seventh ray and... So the pentad works also from the orienting forces, the head, the fiery unifier is the right hand or the right hand of the pentagram. The key to the mystery is the left hand. The expression of the will is left foot and the reveal of, of beauty is the right foot of this pentad of God. Okay, so I hope that some of you now will take a little bit more care when you read DK's books. When you go through statements like this, you'll say, I think there's a little bit more to it than meets my eye. 
it's wonderful, isn't it? There's enough material in all of these books to keep all of you for the rest of your life studying and reading and meditating, and you don't have to do much else but interpreting this.